Did you know you can support your local independent bookstore and me in my efforts to promote books that feature women in aviation by shopping for your next aviatrix read on the Literary Aviatrix website? I built the website to serve as a central source to search and find books featuring women in aviation, and it was important to me to offer you the opportunity to buy from independent sellers. If the book you're interested in is available on bookshop.org, you'll find a link to purchase through my affiliate account on my website, which means I'll receive a small portion of the sale to support the content you love. Blue skies and happy reading. Hello and welcome. I'm Liz Booker, Literary Aviatrix, and I'm talking today with the author of one of two Aviatrix Book Club discussion books for October 2023. Liz McConaughey, whose memoir Chinook Kruchik tells the story of her 17-year career as a helicopter crewman in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan with the UK's Royal Air Force. In it, she also shares the mental health challenges she faced in the aftermath of being medically discharged for neck injuries. In our interview, we talk about her suicide attempt in 2020 and her journey of recovery from that. If you are in crisis, reach out for help. In the United States, dial or message 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Liz McConaughey, welcome. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm very well. I'm so happy to see you. So grateful to be able have the opportunity to talk to you about you, your experiences, and your book. And uh, you know, I'm excited to be doing this in the Aviatrix Book Club for October. Can you give us a synopsis of the book for anyone who hasn't had a chance to read it? Yeah, of course. So it's called Chinook Krucek which is a bit of a mouthful, actually, as I recently discovered. Um, and it's about my career in the Air Force. So I spent 17 and a half years flying on the Mighty Chinook helicopter, the CH-47, um, with the Royal Air Force here in the UK. And part of that duty and part of my time with the Chinook Force, I deployed to Iraq twice and then off to Afghanistan 10 times. So the book is about kind of my journey through that, really. You know, I'm from Northern Ireland, so I was very young and naive when I first um, joined the RAF. Then had a huge learning curve, went to war multiple times. And actually, when I came out the other side of that, um, I then had a huge meltdown with PTSD in 2020. And the book covers that and a lot of the sort of mental health issues that came as part of that. And also the comeback, because the comeback's always stronger, isn't it, at the other end? I hope so, yeah. Well, so why did you write the book? What are you hoping to accomplish? So the book was very much written by mistake, actually. And the book was written in three weeks in total. It took me to write it. And it was um, more of a cathartic experience, really. I was going through a lot of my PTSD counselling at the time in 2020 and just put pen to paper or, as it happens, onto a laptop and stored it on a folder on my laptop and never really thought anything more about it. And then was walking with a really good friend a couple of weeks later and happened to mention to her just in passing, like, don't laugh, but I think I've written a book. And she said, well, why would I laugh? I think that's amazing. Send me it. So I emailed it over to her. She read it. And then it was her that encouraged me to send it off to some publishers. So I did that. And a couple of weeks later, Pen and Sword, who are publishers here in the UK, came back and said, we publish a book. 
So it was never written with the intent of anyone reading it, uh, never mind being published. And, and here I am a year or so later, and it's done really well. It went to a bestseller on Amazon overnight. So I've, I'm forever thankful every day of, uh, of how successful it's been. Well, that's amazing. And I'm so surprised to hear all of that. And okay, so now that it's out there, what have you discovered it has done for you or for the readers? So I think the first thing that the book has really done for me, it's given me my identity back. You know, whenever you served in the Air Force for so long or the military, you know, my 17 and a half years, I was someone I was Liz McConaughey, the Chinook crewman. And it's very hard for any veteran when you take that uniform off to just kind of figure out who you are again. And I think that's actually what led to a lot of my downfall and a lot of my PTSD um, and struggles post the military was just trying to figure out who you are. And I know we don't like labels, but if I'm being truthful, we do. We all need a label and I couldn't figure out who I was. So being Chinook crew chick has given me that label back again, that that identity, but it's also given me the passion and purpose back that I had in the Air Force. So, you know, every day when I was working on Chinook helicopters, especially in Afghanistan, I was making a difference with my ramp. You know, we were putting the ramp down, we were delivering supplies to the guys out in the battlefield, or we were recovering, you know, the injured soldiers off the battlefield. So I made a difference and I really struggled to find that again whenever I left the military. But now with the book, I get messages nearly every day from people who have read the book who say it's really resonated or it's helped them with their mental health or that it's actually prompted them to go and get help with their mental health. And, you know, that's for me a huge amount of you know purpose and, and passion again. So and I talk a lot about mental health now as a speaker. So, again, I'm really passionate about it. So it's given it's, it's done all those things for me. And it's also allowed a lot of other people to know what Chinook Crewman did, because I think a lot of people think that in the Air Force, you just fly and you're just a pilot. Um, and certainly up in a lot of the aircraft that the Air Force, both here in the UK and in the States, you know, they think that there's just, you know, one pilot involved and there's so many more people involved in getting that aircraft, not just off the ground, but also it, operating it in the air. So it's good to kind of highlight that as well for people. Absolutely. And to have a woman write that story is extra special because you're so rare, both in the United States and in the UK. And I really wanted to, I, as a helicopter pilot myself, who worked in a very tight, small, much smaller aircraft than yours, our flight mechanic, who will be talking to one of those this month, Ashley Leopard as well, who has written a book. They sat like right, their head was like right between ours most of the time when we were flying. So we had a very, very tight crew dynamic and we couldn't have done anything without them, especially like you talk about in the book with the marshalling or conning commands that they gave us. Like I, I couldn't see what was under us. I totally depended on them. And so I really wanted to highlight their contributions to our efforts. And it's so wonderful to have the diverse perspective, the different perspective of the UK culture and um, your experiences in combat to, to kind of contrast my own experiences. So thank you so much for this book. And let's talk a little bit. There's so much in what you just said that I want to talk about, but let's talk, tell us a little bit about that career path, what it looks like and what your role actually is in the aircraft. Yeah, so I have no military background whatsoever. You know, my uh, none of my family historically were in the Air Force, and I didn't. I wasn't in the cadets, which is sort of the junior Air Force group that we have here in the UK. So, how did I end up joining? Well, I ended up going up with my brother when he was joining the the UK Army, the British Army. He went up to do his exam test for that, and I went with him. And there was a magazine on the table, and this magazine had a picture of a guy on a helicopter. 
And I just went, that is the coolest job ever. I want to do that. Um, and when I went up for my interview to join the Air Force to do that job, a Chinook helicopter came right over the top of me, of, of my car. And I was still only about 17 and a half years old. And I just fell in love with it. You know, you guys have got Chinooks out there. You know how the sound can get you in the chest. The, you know, it's such a, a familiar aircraft. You know, it's so distinctive with its two rotor blades. There's nothing else like it. And that thud, 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 as it went over me that day, I just looked up and, and just fell in love with it. So I, whenever I joined, I kind of went through basic training. And at each stage in basic training, you get a choice to kind of express where you want to go. Um, obviously, the service will still post you wherever there's gaps or wherever they need you. But if they can, they'll try and match wherever you want to go. And at every turn, all I ever wanted was Chinook. So it was Chinook, 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 option A, B and C. And thankfully got my wish. So I arrived in the Chinook force age just 20. I had my 21st birthday when I was um, on the Chinook school. And then um, was very quickly sent off to Iraq again, age 21. So I was the youngest air crew to go to Iraq and then um, headed off to, so I did two Iraqs and then headed off to Afghanistan shortly after that and did 10 deployments in Afghanistan. So quite a lot really by the end of it. Um, I'm not unique in that respect in that there was probably another couple of crewmen who are up there at double figures like me because we just kept going. Um yeah. And yeah, and the majority of the time in my entire career, I was mostly the only girl, as you mentioned. You know, it's not, there's not that many females in the helicopter world in general, whether or not you're up front or down the back. It's um, a very niche role. So I was the only one for about five years. And even in the heyday, there were six of us. And uh, I remember having a queue for the toilet one day and thinking, this is quite novel. <laughs> so yeah, so it was a very colorful career. And I'm very lucky that I had that slice of time that I was serving because I joined a week after 9-11 happened. And I look back now at how much that that particular day in time changed the entire path of my career. In fact, it changed the entire path of history, didn't it? But I look at the the war zones I went to and the battles that I was involved with. It would have been a very different career had that event not happened, I think. Oh, you know, so when you talk about um, deployments, how long were your deployments? Because that's a lot of deployment. <laughs> it is, yeah. We used to joke that we should just buy property in Afghanistan because yeah. we were there so often. But unlike the, so I know the Americans do like up to a year, maybe longer when they're deployed. Most of the British Army will do six months, um, whereas we as air crew would do three months. And that's mainly so that we can go out there, we can do a three-month tour, and then we can hand over on one of the lunar cycles, so the, the moon phase, and that means that we can get the ongoing crews used to flying in and out of the landing points at night. Um, but it also means that we can then come back to the UK and practice our emergencies, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, in the mm -hmm. simulator here back in the UK. And you've got to refresh yourselves on those drills all the time. Um, so three months is about the maximum that we can go, we can get away with you know, being away from the UK without having a chance to practice all those failures. And the only safe place to do that is it's here in the simulator. So... That's kind of why we base our deployments on three months at a time. But you always knew when you were going back again. So you would do your three-month time. You'd come back here to the UK and you could see on your calendar planner exactly when you were going again nine months later. So it never was far from your thoughts, really. Yeah. yeah. And as a crewman, what, what were some of the missions that you did or what was your role typically in the aircraft? So we've already spoken really about me being the eyes and ears. So the pilot obviously is, is in the front in the cockpit, but the Chinook is 99 feet long from tip to tip. You know, it's a beast of an aircraft. <laughs> and, you know, for the pilot to kind of know where his tail is when you're coming into a landing site, you need the crewman to be able to tell him that. So our main bread and butter is that voice marshalling, which is talking the aircraft around the skies. Especially important with something like a Chinook when you can put three underslung loads underneath the aircraft. 
So trying to pick all of those up and making sure you're in the overhead and making sure that nothing gets tangled is very, very tricky. And it's like plating spaghetti underneath the aircraft in a downwash. So it's the absolute, you know, it's probably one of the most A-level things we do. But we talk the pilot around the sky to be able to achieve that. And again, we, not every landing site is a nice flat airfield. So we land in confined areas and we land on slopes. And again, our job is really to talk the aircraft onto the ground. But it then ramps up to lots of other different tasks as well. So we get quite heavily involved these days in a lot of the navigation because we've got a lot of the navigation kit down the back of the, the aircraft, a lot of the moving maps. Um, certainly out in Afghanistan, we do the TAC radio. So we speak a lot on the TAC radios to the troops on the ground. Um, and I guess probably one of the most important things we do is man the weapons. So uh, the weapons that we have fitted out in, in Afghanistan was a minigun, which is a always made me laugh because there's nothing mini about this weapon. <laughs> uh, it's a beast and it fires about 3,000 rounds a minute. And then we've got another different weapon, an M60 on the ramp. So, you know, our job is to man those and protect the aircraft and everybody in it. So, you know, a, a lot of responsibility uh, in terms of what we do. They, I know the American Chinook Force have a different crewmen they call them crew chiefs out there and they have different ones for different tasks whereas we here in the uk we're just in charge of it all so all <laughs> every right. day is a busy day yeah oh, that's interesting okay yeah you also were involved in these medical emergency response team missions you want to talk about that a little bit yeah so Medical emergency response team was the flying ambulance. And that was a Chinook crew always on standby at 15 minutes notice to move during the day and 30 minutes at nighttime. And that was purely so we could sleep. Um, if I'm being honest, you know, we would get airborne most of the time within about three or four minutes of the, the bat phone going, as we called it. So we would be on standby in one tent in Camp Bastion where the British forces were mainly um, uh, situated. And in the next tent along, we would have some medics. We'd have four medics, and it was a combat doctor, combat nurse, and anaesthetist, and a, uh, a whoever else made up the team. And then the next tent along, we would have some force protection, and that was a, a group of soldiers, whichever regiment were in theatre at the time, and they'd be on standby with us as well. So three distinct groups of people all sat waiting for that phone to go. And then when one of the troops got injured up in the Hellman Valley, the nine liner, which was there, a casualty reporting format would get sent back to Camp Bastion and it would come straight through to us in our tent. So as soon as that went, we would go out the door as fast as we could, sprint to the aircraft and get airborne as fast as physically possible uh, to go and recover the casualties. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just British troops. We picked up a lot of Americans over the years, a lot and any of the NATO troops that were involved in the conflict and and a lot of the Afghan nationals who were caught in the crossfire. So, you know, in, in and amongst that duty, I've seen, you know, small babies coming on the back of the aircraft all the way up to elders and whole families who have been caught in, in amongst the, the trauma. And in the early days, a lot of the stuff we were picking up was quite benign injuries, you know, a lot of vehicle incidents and people falling off buildings and when, when we were putting a lot of Afghanistan together. But by the middle to the end of the campaign, we would pick up routinely, you know, um, limbs missing, you know, torsos, bits of bodies. And it became like scenes from MASH from Vietnam War. You know, it was just relentless. Um, and I think that in itself does definitely leave a mark on you when you look back. You know, it was certainly that the best purpose I've ever had in terms of a role at, in, in a job. Um, and it's, it's a huge honor to be part of a soldier's last journey off a battlefield. But, it, you know, the highs and the lows that come with that, it certainly does definitely leave a lasting mark on your soul. Yeah. I mean, we think about that a lot in, in my world of search and rescue and the things that we see out there too. So 
we can relate in that way. Um, you seemed to have just naturally endeared yourself to your peers, to your mates. I, I was really impressed by that, that you just kind of jumped right in there and became one of them. Uh, tell us about that. How did you accomplish that? <laughs> Honestly, I probably don't know. I think, um, you know, I look back at how young I was when I joined. I was still very, you know, I was only 19 um, whenever I tested to serve Queen and Country here in the UK. And I think that naivety was actually my greatest asset because a lot of the stuff you're asked to do in basic training, I think if you're a little bit older and a little bit more seasoned, you would question it and you'd be like, why am I doing this? Why am I ironing my bed at 4 a.m. in the morning for an inspection? But you just get on with it when you're young and it's all a big adventure. And because I had that kind of excitement and adventure with my personality, I think a lot of the people I worked with and I went through my basic training with, just put their arms around me and they wanted to help me get through. And that's something that the forces does give you in spades. You know, they just, we've all got this one common goal. We all want to help each other get over those hurdles. And, and very much it's a team, team ethos. You know, I was never singled out to be the weaker sex being a female doing my job. And I was never also singled out to be anything special doing my job. I was just one of the gang, one of, you know, be the best person at your job has always been my testament. And as long as you can do that and you're happy to go and make everyone a brew or a cup of tea, as we call it in the UK, whenever um, they want one, you know, and you're part of the team, then you'll always be respected and you've got the credibility. So I think that's maybe that's maybe the magic, magic token. I think there was a little bit of sense of humor in there as well, because you could, you could take some of the, the, uh, the, uh, less appropriate maybe or less politically correct, uh, joking and ribbing that, that went on. I, I actually really <laughs> thought it was, it would never get away with it here in the States, but I kind of, uh, really admired the, the endearment of the patch that they gave you for the back of your helmet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, and you're right, you know, I think we call it banter here in the UK forces. And I've always believed, you know, I get asked all the time, is there sexism in the forces? And I actually, from my perspective and from my experience, I don't think there is. But I also can understand and appreciate that banter and those, you know, that the, the way we, we have it, this joke kind of with each other, it's about how it's perceived, you know, and I, it's again, you know, what I perceive to be offensive might be very different to some other female. You know, certainly from my very early days in the Air Force, I was nicknamed Doris because that's a term of affection for all the females that were in the RAF in World War II. So I always felt it was a very affectionate term and I had it on my mug and I used to sign my emails off with it. But I remember someone calling it in front of my mum and my mum being absolutely horrified that that was my nickname. And then, as yeah. you say, I went on to have a name badge that I wore every time I deployed to war. And it was a joke name badge we always as us as Eric we always like to have a bit of a joke name badge as well and mine was Gloria Stitz so um it's always used to take people a few times to get it when they saw it on the back of my helmet they'd have to read it a couple of times and say it out loud and then the joke would land and I was you know some of the soldiers we flew in Helmand were living their worst day and for them to be able to see the back of my helmet see Gloria Stitz written on there and I'd see the shoulders start to laugh as they chuckled and they would all laugh down the aircraft and I thought if I can help them out on their worst day and give them something to smile about, then then I'm happy to do that. So absolutely, but. that's really wonderful, and I love the story that you share about this reporter who still seems to not have gotten the joke. <laughs> no, no, still has no great. idea. 
Yeah. Well, so you did just this wonderful job. And this is, I'm prior enlisted. I was um, a quartermaster, a ship navigator when I was enlisted. I started off as a deck crew, scraping barnacles off of buoys and then worked my way up <laughs> in the world. And so for me, you really captured sort of like, you know, on the ship, you kind of talk about the ship culture too, a little bit with the, uh, I've been in both roles as ships, ships crew, and then also as air crew on a ship. So I get both sides of that now. But um at the time, just like a, a, the camaraderie that I had with, with the guys because I was the only girl in my department. And so I really appreciated the way that you, you conveyed that, um, in that culture that you were in. And here's kind of what I saw in the book is that, you know, you give us this, um, very, very positive, exciting, you know, career that you're entering, you're learning how to do all these things, you're feeling very useful. Yes, there's some really hard, sad things that happen along the way. But this is your world. It's your entire focus. It's your entire purpose in being. And then what happens? So yeah, whenever I came back from my last Afghanistan deployment, um, my neck started to, to develop a pain in the back of my neck, which had probably been there for quite some time. But as with most things, when there's a task at hand to be done, you can kind of ignore these things and press on. Um, so eventually I got grounded from flying, uh, which was the one thing I absolutely loved doing. And despite lots of rehab clinics here in the UK and even the experts um, for the British medical experts and physios, they couldn't put me back together. And I damaged these bones in the back of my neck irreparably, mostly from wearing a helmet, the night vision goggles we wear and the body armor that I was wearing nearly every day in Afghanistan. So it was kind of inevitable it was going to come at some point. Um, but I had a good innings by that point. I'd already done 3,000 hours flying on a Chinook. So yeah, it was it, I was probably due an injury. So that led to me um, being medically discharged from the Air Force. And I was only 37 when this happened. You know, I'd had my entire career in front of me and I'd never envisaged leaving that early. Um, and, and taking the flying seat off and handing it back in, you know, there's a huge... Every day I wore my brevet on my chest and it said Liz McConaughey, Chinook Crewman. And I look back now and wonder if that was so that other people would know who I was or if it's so I knew who I was because every day I could read it and I knew that this is who I am. And suddenly it wasn't there. You know, we have a bit of a joke here in the UK is if the, the RAF have a and round doll is the emblem. And if you cut me in half, you would say a round doll. I was that girl. I was so institutionalized and it was... No, never just a job to me. It was my entire being. You know, my flying suit was my Wonder Woman costume. And suddenly I was just little Liz from Basingstoke here where I live in the UK. And I didn't have any kind of purpose or identity. And I really struggled. So I kind of bobbed around in 2019 for about a year in between jobs, as many veterans do, trying to find that sense of purpose again. And I think when you've gone from something like, you know, Mert in Afghanistan you, well, you're literally saving lives to try and find something else that's ever going to fit that mold again. It's very difficult. So I kind of pepper potted around some jobs. And then uh, we got locked down here in the UK in March in 2020 for COVID. And that's when things started to unravel very, very quickly. Um, so as that year went on, I lost my routine. And that is something that all of us service people thrive on. I think air crew in general really thrive on, you know, checks and balances. We do our checks before we go flying. We like our briefs. And, you know, that's certainly the routine we have on the squadron and the routine that we in the military love. And suddenly all of that was gone during our, our lockdown in, here in the UK because we couldn't leave the house for more than 10 minutes. So I couldn't go and run and do all the things I'd always use, just coping mechanisms for a lot of the things I'd seen in Helmand. 
And then the lack of routine, the lack of exercise only ever leads to one thing, which is insomnia. And insomnia is a form of torture. You know, when we use it quite effectively during my my escape and evasion training as a form of torture, you know, it it can really start to unhinge a lot of other stuff in your life. And I developed insomnia that year. And I knew I was in a really dangerous place when one evening at four o'clock in the morning, I couldn't sleep. And I started to look up some of the guys that I picked up on merch. I got my logbook out and I started to Google these guys who hadn't made it back in one piece and they paid the ultimate price. And it was something that we'd never done while we were carrying out that duty because we knew how dangerous it would be to personalize whoever was in the body bag. You know, it was just very precious freight that we had to get back to Camp Bastion. And here I was at four o'clock in the morning looking these guys up. You know, were they married? Did they have kids? One guy had proposed to his fiancée before he went and never made it home. So all the red flags were showing and waving that I was not in a good place, but I didn't reach out for help. I didn't pick up the phone to a single friend and I could have done, but I didn't want to be a burden. And I look back now and I wonder if that's because, you know, being a female in a male dominated world, even though they would never have made me feel like that, they would have, they would have much rather I picked up the phone and asked for help than what happened. But I didn't want to reach out and be that burden. And that had certainly that pressure, that feeling had come from inside. It was never something that had been impressed upon me by anyone else. So eventually um, I unraveled and unraveled and then took a huge overdose in the August in 2020 with the absolute intent of ending my life and, and went to sleep having taken 95 amitriptyline, which is a pretty big overdose um, and by all accounts shouldn't really be here talking to you today. <laughs> so, um, and I don't remember a lot after taking those on that night. I want to back it up because I want to talk about that. Um, but just to back it up to your neck and that, that whole um, idea of our bodies, like when we're in an air crew position or, you know, there are other jobs out there, firemen, policemen, whatever, where your livelihood depends on your physical fitness and everything being in one piece. And, you know, um, I thought it was interesting that that was your demise because I and most of the women that I know who flew helicopters have our C curve, our natural C curve, which opens to the back on a normal human neck. Um, all of ours are either straightened or reversed because of wearing that helmet and night vision goggles for all those years. So I'm not surprised that that was the thing that got you at all. But, um, you know, we put all of our eggs in one basket, basically. So I had a wake up call in my career where I had been in for 15 years. I was in my second aviation tour. So I was enlisted for five years and then officer and pilot. And um, I was denied an opportunity. So, so fortunately, it wasn't a physical thing. I was denied an opportunity for sort of like the next upgrade in the aircraft. I wasn't happy about it. But I kind of saw like my whole opportunities and career flash before my eyes. And so I sought out ways to pivot and, you know, sort of round out because I didn't even have a college education at that point. And I knew that if I retired really and if I poked my eye out, you know, I, I couldn't fly, then I would be flipping burgers. And so I, I pivoted and got an education and found other opportunities and ways to kind of enhance my career experience and nurture other interests in addition to aviation. And then I became a big advocate for that. And so just looking back at your career and the way that you were sort of set up for a tragic fall, like, you know, off of a cliff, if something like that happened to you, which it did. 
Is there any advice that you have for young people who are in the service now who are kind of all in, you know, what, what would you could, could you have done differently for yourself, maybe to set yourself up with other avenues or, or interests um, to support you in that transition? Um, so I've never really thought about it like that, but you're so right. You know, when I've, I've joined so young and then I was committed to the cause and, and Afghanistan was such an overwhelming kind of uh, deployment that you didn't have time to go and do anything on the side. You didn't have right. time to add more strings to your bow or do online courses. You were just in it. You were in that. You were on the treadmill running at 20 miles an hour. And yeah, you're right. You know, I look, what you said is exactly true. I was almost, you know, it was always going to happen. That cliff was always there. It was just a matter of time. So I think, you know, coming back to your question, really what youngsters can kind of do before they go in now is that, you know, I was so set on joining the RAF that whenever I got accepted to join, I kind of wrote my A-levels off a little bit because I knew I'd been accepted to go and that was all I ever wanted to do. And if I'd have probably, you know, I was already in the system, in the education system, so I really should have concentrated a little bit harder on those instead of being so task-focused on the Air Force. But equally, you know, the Air Force has got so many opportunities out there for people. And I think sometimes we talk ourselves out of stuff and we go, I'm too busy. I can't fit that in. And you can make time. And if you're presented those opportunities throughout your career in the forces, you know, there are so many avenues to explore, so many extra skills that you can add to your portfolio to take everything you're given and grab it with both hands. Because, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? You know, you fail the course or whatever, but you're still going to be in the forces. It's still going to be the thing that's going to look after you. So, you know, try everything, get whatever you can for free and, and keep thinking about the end goal, really, rather than what happened to me, which is it was a surprise <laughs> when it came. Whereas, you know, it's going to happen even if you live a full career and you never get injured, there's still an end point on that career, that forces career journey. So plan for it from day one. Yeah, uh, that's the advice that I started giving to pilots, both in now that I'm talking to a lot of pilots in the civilian world, and we saw what happened to the airline industry during COVID. It's like, yes, if aviation is your passion, do everything that you can and focus on it and get qualified, get all the qualifications that you can. And once you're established as a professional pilot, then start thinking about like, okay, what else? What else can I do for myself? What if, yeah, what if I wake up tomorrow and I, yeah, I can't see out of my right eye. Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And there is so much more, even as a pilot, there are so many more avenues that you will have as soft skills from being a pilot in the aviation environment that you can go and do as a different career. You know, you look at um, a lot of human factors training that we do in the forces. I, I find human factors fascinating. And that's something that a lot of my friends have gone on to teach in the civilian world, especially yeah. with our NHS here in the UK, with the medical profession. Um, but, you know, CRM, crew resource management, how to work your team effectively, flight safety as well. And then even just airfield management, stuff that we as aircrew take for granted, but all those skills that you can pass on into another another job that doesn't involve putting that helmet on your head. Yeah. And and you you bring a good point up that a lot of I, I see a lot of my um, friends who are out there with their their books and doing sort of um, leadership talks and stuff like that is that we uh we uh former military veterans both enlisted and officers sometimes don't realize how much we bring 
to any job. I mean, just the, the fact that you have the discipline to show up, that you can take direction and follow rules and, and are conscientious, uh, you know, even without all of the other skills that you've developed, uh, sometimes we don't appreciate how much we have to offer yeah. any, any opportunities that are out there. So, yeah. I think we now, also imposter syndrome we're very I'm very yeah. guilty of that still and uh, you know I stand in front of big audiences now and talk about the book and I still have this huge imposter syndrome you know one of the very first book events I went to when the book had been released uh, there was a very famous actress here from the UK sat beside me and she said oh are you an author and I said no no I'm not an author I'm a Chinook crewman and she said well why are you here and I said well I wrote a book and she said well so you're an author then and I said <laughs> We as forces people, we never really, like you say, give ourselves our dues of what we are, are capable of. And that, you know, that mm. imposter syndrome for a lot of my forces friends really does kick in when you hit City Street. They just don't think they're capable of anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really a great point. And um, uh, what, one of the things I alluded to in one of my posts about your leading up to your books being uh, this month is just this idea is as, especially as enlisted, like the, the cultural transition for me, I don't know how it is in the RAF. I imagine it's similar though, but the cultural transition from enlisted to officer was a, a challenge because in the, in the enlisted world, at least back when I was enlisted, we did not write our own evaluations. Somebody evaluated us. So there was at no point where we self promoting or bragging. And if you were, nobody had the time of day for that. Like if you were somebody who was bragging about all of the work that you had done, like nobody wanted to hear that. Right. So it's not part yeah. of the culture. Then you become an officer and um, that's a little different. <laughs> and so that was a really hard thing for me to do. But what just thinking about coming from that culture, the way you did, the way Ashley did um, and, and putting a book out into the world, that takes a lot of courage just in and of itself because of our culture. Right. And I was wondering, how do your, how have your mates sort of responded to this book being out and how do you feel about that? Yeah. So we had funny enough, um, a big Chinook reunion every year and it was on Friday, just gone. And it's the first one that I've been to since the book has been released on the streets. So I was kind of nervous going because it's going to be, you know, there's 500 people, maybe more in this pub um, in London. And um, and most of them have read the book. If not, they all kind of know my story. And thankfully, all of them are so supportive. You know, I think, again, from what I said earlier, just to even be able to put the crewman role on the map and for people to be able to see what we did. But to also yeah. tell the story of the Chinook force in Helmand and in Afghanistan, what we did as a force in terms of saving you know casualties and the things that we went through you know i think as a force everyone's really happy that that story has been told so yeah i'm very relieved that they all have, have, have fully supported me and uh, yeah i was always very worried because you know i never thought i'm anything special because i was just doing the job that every single one of my mates did and therefore why am i special in any way and i guess that was my main concern of them going what makes her think she's so special that she's written about it in a book? But actually, they were just really supportive that this our story was out there. And again, coming back to that team thing, it's our story. It might be my name on the front cover of the book, but it's actually our story. So, yeah. Yeah, most of it is. But... But like you talked about, that end is definitely your story where the the place, you know, the place that you were mentally might have been a shared experience for everyone. But the fact that you got to that point and that you were willing that you had the courage afterwards to obviously you wrote it for yourself, but to share that with the world that makes you very vulnerable. But it also it starts the conversation. So just talk a little bit about, you know, 
the importance that that you see that having and the impact that you have you have in the world because you shared that. Yeah, and it was scary. I remember um, putting a post out on my social media after I came out, I'd come out of hospital and after the overdose because I knew some people knew what had happened, some people didn't, some people were filling in the gaps as people like to do, and I thought, well, I need to almost put like a PR statement on my Facebook to say like this happened, I'm okay now, and I'm kind of getting help. And after that initial kind of prompt, um, so many people messaged me, so many of my friends and colleagues, you know, messaged me privately to say that they equally were struggling. And it, then it suddenly occurred to me that I am not alone in this journey. You know, there are so many people who suffer in silence behind amazing social media posts that look like they're living their best life as I, as I did. And actually in the background, we're really struggling. And I think that's, you know, that's worldwide. You know, people hide behind their masks on social media or in the public eye. And actually there's a lot of stuff going on that nobody nobody knows about. And that was the other thing that a lot of my friends messaged me to say, Liz, we had no idea. And there was a mixed emotions of kind of, I think initially a lot of people were angry that I didn't reach out to them for help. And then also people just questioning, how did I get to that point? And, you know, I'd when it comes back to that feeling of anger, I felt like I had to explain to those people that whenever you were in a suicidal state, you know, I had been on the periphery of suicide before, never directly kind of affected by it. But I'd always thought it was such a selfish thing to do. You know, you leave all those people behind, you leave all these questions and all these people wondering how they could change the outcome. And that was my stance on suicide until that morning I woke up and my brain was completely, you know, it was like having an out-of-body experience. It was like watching my life through a movie that day because I had mentally checked out of life and almost out of my body. And I, you know, I spent the entire day planning it. And I look back now at how my reasoned thought process was completely not working that day. And that, again, is a, a kind of a fallout from all the years of training that we go through in the military and indeed air crew. It doesn't even matter if you're not military, but as air crew, you're trained to kind of react to emergencies, to go to the fight, to keep, you know, not to run away because you can't. So you're trained to fight. And that overwhelms or that overcomes your fight or flight response. So that day, my fight or flight response, my reason to thought process just wasn't working. And I had to explain to everybody that, you know, when you get to that point and you've mentally, it's like having a donut on your water slide. I was only going one way that day and nobody, I think, could have changed the outcome of what happened that night. But I needed to be able to tell my friends that so they understood it. Um because, you know, and I'm very lucky that I survived and I can do that. And certainly I mentioned it in the book, you know, for anyone who's ever been affected by suicide in any way, who will have all those questioning thoughts, you know, what can I have said differently? Why didn't I ask them that day I saw them how they were? There gets to a point where if you haven't got to them before they mentally check out, then there's very little you can do. And you should never beat yourself up about it because, you know, that person will end up doing what they need to do. Well, that I, I hear you, and I I admire you taking responsibility for your for your state of mind and and where you were and like and like you say, letting people off the hook. But it also gives me a sense of hopelessness um, for you to say that both about the person who finds themselves in that situation and the people around them who want to help. So. How how do I how do I reconcile those two things? I do change it. So the, I talk about this a lot in my mental health talks now. I, and I think up until that that moment where I checked out, that's where people can help. And there is absolutely no two ways about it. Us in the forces are such a tight, close family that you can pick out behavioral changes really quickly with people. You know, 
for someone who's always at the gym, as I was, to suddenly never exercising at all. You know, if, if we'd have seen that when we were deployed in Afghanistan, someone coming back from a, a day's tasking and suddenly not going to the gym, who was always there, we would have noted that behavior change. Or coming back here to the UK, someone who's always in the pub first, suddenly not going to the pub, or vice versa, someone who's constantly hitting hitting the, the pints down the pub. You pick up those behavior changes. Now, nobody picked that up with me because we were locked down. And again, right. social media is very good at hiding behind. But also the two things I tell people to do now, and it's kind of come out of me looking retrospectively and a lot of my counseling is, you know, to ask people twice if they're okay. Because that year, a lot of the time, a few friends didn't know I was kind of up and down in terms of depression uh, and that depressive state of mind. And the odd person who would say, you know, are you okay? I'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. How are you? And you get the spotlight off you straight away. And because people, when they're crumbling inside, don't want to talk about it. So the first thing you do is deflect it. Whereas the odd person who would ask a second time, are you really okay? It was sometimes enough to crack the egg. And, you know, the, the forces are great at hard boiling us as eggs, but they're not very good at reversing that process. So I always tell people now, if you think anyone's on that, and I call it the river of depression, because I've been on that all of 2020, and I had no idea how close the edge of the waterfall was. And it turned out I went over there in 12 hours, literally from waking up that morning to point of overdose. It was 12 hours. And you, if you've got any friends who you think are on that wave or on that river, get to them before they get to that point. And the second thing I always encourage people to do as well with friends and so you don't feel so helpless is talk with your friends and give your mental health a number. You know, I massively give my mental health a number now and it's not always nine or 10 out of 10. There are still some days where it's two or three out of 10 because I'm human and life is not always roses and fantastic and that's just real life. So I'm not very much more open and authentic about giving my mental health a number and you have to be authentic. You know, there's no point in saying it if you're lying. You have to be really honest about it. But it means that my friends can kind of monitor my mental health a bit more. You know, if I'm a three, to keep an eye on me. If I'm a nine, don't have to worry about me this week. And it means I can monitor my own mental health so much better. I can kind of see where I'm going. If I've been a low number for a week or two, it's probably time to start doing something about it. So I always say those two things. Ask someone twice how they are and give your mental health a number and have those conversations with your friends, your family, your work colleagues. Have those open conversations. Yeah, no, that's all good advice. I have um, one friend who stayed in my mind when I read your book, very close friend, um, who I'm constantly monitoring. And uh, uh, one of the things that I do with him when he when he calls and I say, are you okay? And I hear that it's quiet on the end, other end, I'll say, you know, it's, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And just that usually cracks it open with us. So, yeah. And the other thing I, you know, I, I get asked a lot in my talks is that how do you get some people to open up? Because there are still people out there who, you know, aren't well and you know that aren't okay, but they will absolutely never open up to you about it. And I've said that I seem to find as soon as you display your own vulnerability, then that opens that door for a conversation. You know, the, if I ask somebody else for help, chances out of 10 that they will say, oh my God, I'm really struggling as well with this. And it can be something really simple about, you know, work, or it can be something really deep inside of, in terms of emotion and mental health. But as, as soon as you show that you're human and you're vulnerable and you're struggling yourself, then that opens the conversation. And I certainly find that a lot now with my social media profile and with the book being out is that people feel safe to kind of tell me their stories and how they're feeling because I'm as vulnerable as anyone and I make it quite quite openly you know in public that I I'm not always good I still have good and bad days but that's part of being human 
Yeah. One of the things that I noticed you did. Um, so I recently interviewed another guest who was talking about writing for healing. And she's talked very specifically about a technique that I noticed you do in the end of the book. You talk about the way that you feel now in addition to the way that you felt then. And, and we're talking very specifically about your experiences in Afghanistan and then also sort of this this river of depression that you were on. So was that intentional? Was that a guided technique that mental health professionals helped you do? Or is it just something that came naturally to you to doc- talk about in this book? No, I think it was just, you know, me kind of looking back and going how far I've come, really. Um, and, and and I guess a nice way to su- summarize the book, because I hope to write more. So, um, you know, the, my journey is definitely not over yet. I'm still on that path and I'd love to write more books. Certainly there'll be a sequel to Chinook Rootick at some point. But what one thing that I, I do mention in the book that came out during my therapy is that looking back can be very, very detrimental to your mental health. So I used to say all the time that I used to be a Chinook crewman and I used to be this and I used to be that. And when I was going through my um, PTSD counselling, my counsellor said, but you're always looking for that missing person. You're always looking backwards. And she said, you need to embrace who you are now. And it was the first time that I was able to say I'm a veteran. And it was the first time I was able to say I'm a writer. And I think that that's really important that just that power of language of saying I am rather than I used to be, is really very powerful. So I would, you know, that goes, anyone who's taken the uniform off and used to be something, it's great to remember those and always keep those lessons that you've learned there. And we can never forget where we've come from, but actually you really need to focus and and start to love who you are now. That's great advice. Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate because I retired in 2019, right before COVID, um, which would have been, it was already difficult. You talk about routines, like I had a battle rhythm. I had everything, you know, a daily routine that I was perfectly happy with until everybody came crashing into the house all over it and totally destroyed it. But also I had the opportunity um, in my last tour as a foreign diplomat to take off my uniform a lot of the time and wear civilian clothes. So I got this slow transition out of wearing my identity everywhere that I went. And I and I was very conscious of how important that was going to be for my transition to civilian life. And I'm grateful that I had that um, along with some other things to kind of ease out of that identity and into whatever it is that I am now. I am many things. <laughs> I think you're right. It's so important. You know, here in the UK, you can serve your whole life for the forces and the day you leave they cut the corners of your id you hand all your kit back in and on the monday all your friends are still in the club they're all behind the wire they're all behind the card room where you have to get your car pass and suddenly to go and see your friends just for a cup of coffee you have to get escorted onto camp you have to get a car pass you have to get all that security and you know it's certainly very different to leaving a, a civilian company where you can still go back in the next week and have a cup you know catch up with your friends if you're in the right. military you're out of the club Overnight, yeah, that's a very hard yeah. thing. It's a very hard to stop at the end. Yeah, and you had been wearing your resume on your chest for the past however many years. Yeah, it is very different. Well, congratulations on this book. I think it's really, um, it was really well done. Really uh, resonated with me on so many levels. I think uh, is a very eye-opening uh, window into the experience of a Chinook crew person um, in the RAF. So I think it's wonderful that you wrote it and that you had the courage to publish it. 
you mentioned, uh, you know, we were going to do this interview today and you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not feeling great. Um, but I'm so busy there next three weeks that we just have to get it done. And I saw a, a little video of you all glammed up a couple of weeks ago for an event. So what's going on? Tell us about where we can find you. What What's happening in your life right now? So the book has kind of catapulted me into motivational speaking. So I do a lot of keynote speaking and after dinner speaking. Um, and the event I was at last week, I had a, a black tie event where I was, I was on stage kind of giving the keynote speak about mental health and the forces, which is such an honor to be have a room full of people still in their uniform and serving. Um, and, you know, I will never stand at the front of a room. I, I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I can't tell people how to get better. Or even, and even, you know, how to not get sick and not get PTSD. All I can do is share my story and hope that the lesson that I learned the hard way, other people don't follow in my footsteps. So that's what I do. I just share my story as openly and honestly as I can. Um, so yeah, every single week is different at the minute. I've been in London lots and I'm going to Poland uh, next week. And then I'm off back home to Belfast, where I'm originally from at the end of the month. So. Yeah, all over the place, doing loads of different talks. Have to come out to the States at some point, hopefully. Um, yeah, and, I'm sure. Yeah. And again, just, you know, the, I think the overwhelming thing I'm learning on this journey, every time I give a talk to people, is that there are multiple people in the room who are also struggling. And it comes back to that, you know, we're all going through something. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you if they are interested in, in hosting you as a speaker? Ah, so I am on Twitter now as Chinichick. Um, and I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as Chinook Krujic. So the title of the book, if you look me up on there, you'll find me. Um, and I love, again, I love interacting with people and hearing people's stories. So uh, if anyone does want to follow me, I'd love to hear from you. And, uh, and most importantly, if you've read the book, I'd love to hear what you think of the book as well. That's awesome. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? No, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation, Liz, and I've really enjoyed coming on today. It's been it's been a while since I've done some of these podcasts because I did lose them at the start of the, my journey into the book world, and then yeah. it's just been so crazy busy. So it's nice to actually yeah. chat to a fellow aviator and a fellow Liz. Oh yeah, absolutely! It's been such a joy talking to you and getting to know you. I can't wait to meet you in person and have a pint sometime. You'll be flying as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I can't wait for that opportunity. Well, good luck to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. And I look forward to seeing what you do next. Yay. Thanks, Liz. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, if you are in crisis, please reach out for help in the US dial or message 988 for the suicide and crisis lifeline. I'd like to thank Michael Wilds of Massive and Crew for his help in producing this interview and for his creative and technical support of all things literary aviatrix. Blue skies and happy reading. Yay.